Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 15. As we continue our study through this gospel, Matthew 15. We'll look this morning at the first 20 verses of this uh, chapter. Some years ago, my brother showed me an old book that he had that contained ancient uh, medical procedures, instruction about those things. It was disconcerting to read. Read about attaching leeches to properly bleed a patient in order to remove defective blood. And yet such things were actually practiced in good conscience at one time. Fortunately, we've come to understand more about that and to know that just any old treatment is not good enough. And the same is true in the realm of our spiritual health. All kinds of things have been taught and practiced in the past, sometimes with good intentions, sometimes with not, sometimes, in, but certainly in keeping with long-standing traditions. But not everything is good enough. Not everything is helpful. Not everything pleases the Lord. That's what we find in our text this morning, Jesus correcting wrong-headed ideas and practices concerning our relationship to God. Let me read it, Matthew 15, the first 20 verses. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father and mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God, he is not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean. But what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. Then the disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They're blind guides. If a blind guide leads a blind man, they will both fall into a pit. Peter said, well, explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And those make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man, man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. This is God's word for us this morning. Well, there are two major parts of this psalm. The 
Pharisee's uh, question and Jesus' answer, and then Jesus' instruction to the crowd and to his disciples. And uh, that gives us two points, two very different points. The first point is this. God decides the rules of worship. God decides the rules of worship. This chapter begins with a delegation of uh, Pharisees and the teachers of the law coming from their headquarters in Jerusalem up, up into the backwoods of Galilee, a place they wouldn't necessarily want to be, to confront Jesus about his disciples breaking established religious tradition by failing to practice the ritual hand washings. We see that in verse 2. But when Jesus replies to them, beginning in verse 3, he did not even attempt to answer the question that they asked. Instead, he condemned their hypocrisy, for they claimed to honor God, but they did not worship according to what God said in his word. They needed to be, be reminded that God makes the rules concerning worship. So let me explain what they were doing, which Jesus found so objectionable. They taught that a man, that once a man declared something consecrated to God, its use was limited for anything else. Well, that sounds good, doesn't it? The practice actually grew out of the importance of an oath. Once an oath is spoken, you can't just reverse it and say, uh, King's Acts, I didn't really mean it. What a high view of holiness, right? A tradition of honoring God with your mouth, with your oaths, your words. The problem was people, being sinful as people are, had figured out how to use this holy tradition for their own good. And somehow it was okay with the Jewish leaders. As Jesus specifically described it here, a man could declare his savings, for example, as consecrated to God in distinction from his parents. So when that man's parents got old and needed care, his responsibility to spend his savings honoring his parents was excused. For the money he would have spent on them he had consecrated to God. Oh, that didn't mean he had to go contribute the money to the temple treasury. He could keep it in his account. He could uh, uh, get it to compound interest. Uh, he could use it for other things that hadn't been mentioned in that consecration. And perhaps give it later, say maybe on his deathbed, when he no longer needed it. But not one penny could be used to help his parents. But Jesus was not very impressed with that practice. Who was it again that said, honor your father and your mother and declared a curse on those who did not? It was the Lord. It was God's law that was being set aside by some fine-sounding fine tradition. Therefore, Jesus had hard things to say to these Pharisees and teachers of the law. Not surprising and the disciples came to him later and said, you hurt their feelings. <laughs> Jesus said, you hypocrites. That's gentle. He says, 
It was you God was speaking about when he, through Isaiah, when Isaiah prophesied, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Well, you see, they were setting aside the very word of God in favor of their man-made traditions. They had come to ignore the fact that God's the one who decides the rules of worship. Not you. Not me. So does that kind of thing ever happen today? The word of God being nullified by some tradition? I was thinking about that a little bit, and I thought of some examples. It seemed to me that that's what it was about. How about the churches? We have them around. Who talk much about the love of God, his acceptance of broken people, the call of Jesus to feed the poor, and to love everybody. They talk much about that, as if that's the only thing the Bible ever said. But then they use those cherry-picked passages to deny that God hates sin and disapproves of things like fornication and adultery and homosexuality and divorce and murder and whatever. And then these religious leaders condemn those who say what God says in his word, calling us unchristian haters. That sounds like a little tradition that you've woven together some Bible verses to form. It's denying what God says. Another example. How about other churches who are so concerned for people's piety that they feel like they have to spell it all out for us? Christians are not to drink or smoke or dance or wear makeup or play cards or you name it, the list is very long. The more places you live, the more you, real, you more realize the things on the list, more things on the list. Though the Bible doesn't speak of those things, actually. Oh, but the Bible does talk about things like self-righteousness and greed and covetousness and a judgmental attitude, etc. Well, those things are overlooked. And these churches have such a list of thou shalt nots. <laughs> Those other things are somehow overlooked as acceptable for God's people. No, God, not our particular tradition, decides the rules of holiness. Well, it doesn't have to be church groups. How about just a person, single person? How about a person? who in the name of serving the Lord fills his time, fills every night of the week with church functions and committee meetings and Bible studies and outreach programs, etc. Wonderful things. But consequently has little time to interact with his own children, to go to their ball games or piano recitals, to teach them how to cook or to fish, or to show them by word and example how to walk with the Lord. 
that pattern of church busyness is also a practice of Christianity defined by a certain kind of church tradition that the church calendar ought to be full every day of the week. Not by God's word, who clearly, which clearly instructs parents to teach our coveted children when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. You see, God decides the rules. So beware, whatever strand of the church, beware of religious traditions that nullify God's word. That's the first truth we learn here. It's what Jesus had to say to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, though they had asked quite another question. But Jesus was also concerned to answer their question about ceremonial washing. Not for their sake, he had already pretty much dismissed them as hypocrites, but for the sake of his disciples, for the sake of the crowd, which brings us to our second point. Evil comes from your heart. Evil comes from your heart. It's often been said, continues to be said, you are what you eat. Well, not exactly. Your body takes in all kinds of food, some good, some bad, breaks it down, extracts from it what is usable for fuel and for building the body up and discards the rest. And the body has a tremendous ability to gain the nourishment it needs from all kinds of food and all kinds of places in the world. It is amazing what people eat and still live. And just as eating Brussels sprouts or eggplant doesn't make you a Brussels sprout or an eggplant, so eating your food with unwashed hands does not spiritually defile. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here. To understand what's going on here, you need to understand the Jewish traditions a little bit. In teaching the necessity of holiness, the Old Testament declared certain foods clean and certain foods unclean. The clean foods you could eat, the unclean ones you could not eat. In addition, the Old Testament prescribed certain ceremonial washings for the priests as they led worship. This was not a hygienic washing of their hands before a meal, something we probably all would think is wise. This was a worship ritual, a ceremonial washing to display the necessity of purity before God. The Old Testament talked about those. Those are good things. But through the years, the rabbis developed these simple concepts into a whole oppressive system of ritual, ceremonial washings, which ended up surrounding every meal and every person. So Jesus' disciples, while keeping the actual Old Testament requirements, dis disregarded many of those traditions coming from the rabbis, hence the confrontation. Jesus was calling into question the validity of the traditions of the elders. So what was Jesus' concern? What was his point? He was saying that we need to understand the nature of sin's 
defilement. Eating without any ceremonial washing cannot defile you with sin. It's just food. Your body uses what it can and disposes of the rest. Unfortunately, that defilement you fear is already present in your own heart. And it threatens to come spilling out at every opportunity. Evil comes from your own heart. This is important truth for us, though we don't live in that same culture. The Jewish leaders had come to view defilement as something we pick up or catch through contact with an unclean world. If that was the case, we should have nothing to do with anyone other than Christians. But Jesus says, no. Evil is already present in your own heart. In that regard, you're no different than any other sinner. So what's the answer? We need a new heart. We need a kind of washing that water won't do. And that's exactly what God had promised over the centuries through the prophets. Listen to what he said through the prophet Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. Folks, this is exactly what Jesus came to accomplish. A washing more effective than soap and water. A renewal more profound than learned behavior. A transformation which is nothing less than new eternal life. That's what we hear in Titus 3. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. Did you get that? The washing of rebirth. That's not washing your hands with water. That's what God does in our hearts. Renewal by the Holy Spirit. That's the new life, the new heart. We have no hope other than what Jesus promised to do. For the evil that defiles us every day comes from inside. How does God work this in us? When the gospel is proclaimed, it's a mystery. I can't comprehend it. It is a work to which we can contribute nothing. 
just as we contributed nothing to our birth in the beginning. But God giving us a new heart changes everything. In his book, Your Father Loves You, J.I. Packer tries to explain. This is what he says. The new birth or regeneration is an inner recreating of fallen human nature by God's Holy Spirit. It changes the disposition from lawless, godless self-seeking into one of trust and love, of repentance for past rebelliousness and unbelief, and loving compliance with God's law henceforth. It enlightens the blinded mind to discern spiritual realities, and it liberates and energizes the enslaved will for free obedience to God. That's what we need. A new heart. Because our problem is the corruption inside. Every religion of the world has its traditions which define the religious life. Very often, those traditions are contradictory, though, or very subjective, subject to the whims of the leaders, change them at will. Ancient Judaism was no different. Though they had been entrusted with the very word of God, people labored to comply with all the traditions of the elders. But Jesus came rebuking such hopeless contradiction. He made clear that God decides the rules. The rules for holiness. The rules for proper worship. The rules for acceptance by God. There is no understanding, no, no other standard than the word which God has given us. Every religion in the world also has its teaching about defilement. Most often, there are specific physical things or places, contact with which is thought to defile you. Or there are evil people, contact with whom will defile you. And often the definition of what defiles is very unclear, leaving people living in constant fear and uncertainty. But Jesus comes speaking with absolute clarity whether people liked what he said or not. He made clear that spiritual defilement does not come from what you eat or drink. Spiritual defilement does not come from where you might happen to travel. Spiritual defilement does not come from whomever you might be in contact no, evil is not like catching the flu. The verdict is much more serious. Evil comes from your own heart. Out of the evil heart comes every kind of wickedness. It just naturally pours forth in our words and behavior. So what hope is there for people with hearts, which as Jeremiah says, 
are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. There's only one hope. One hope for people like us. That God gives us a new heart. That's a hope held out in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the meaning of the saving work of Jesus who took our defilement upon himself and rose from the dead to give us new life. God's Holy Spirit gives us new birth with a new heart. So this morning, I just call you to run to Jesus, to abandon every hope of establishing your right standing before God by some efforts or some tradition or some whatever, and cast yourself upon the mercy of the Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we sometimes kid ourselves and think we're doing pretty well. We have our little ceremonies we go through. We think we get some points from you every time we do them. And then, Father, perhaps you allow us to just be what we are by nature. And it is so ugly. And we realize how defiled we are. And, Father, we would despair. despair of any hope in ourselves. So thank you, Father, that your word to us is not be careful what you eat, be careful who you associate with, be careful where you go because you don't want to get dirty. Thank you that you speak the truth that we all know that we're dirty inside, but that Jesus came to wash us with a washing that we cannot do with water, to take away our sin by the bloody shed. And to send his spirit to give us a new heart, resurrection, life that he earned for us. May we never stop running back to you, Lord. Resting in you. Trusting in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.